0: Welcome back, Stewheads, to another episode of All Things Curious and Intriguing. I'm your host, Leah.
1: And I'm Steve. And today is all about the creator of Ripley's Believe It or Not. In a true rags-to-riches story, Robert Ripley created an odd and fascinating franchise that included cartoons, books, radio, television, and even museums all across the country and around the world.
0: If you have an appetite for intriguing and bizarre true stories, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for a curious helping of remnant stew. Okay, so a new segment that, that I'd like to start including, and, and we're going to do it for the first time today, is the oddity du jour, the oddity of the day. And so this is a, a news story that comes out of Port uh, Coquitlam, uh, which you know, I read that throughout the article, and that's the way it's spelled. And so I looked at the pronunciation, and sure enough, it's exactly that way. Uh, but Thank Port for it. Uh, Port <laughs> Port Coquitlam is a city. In, I'm probably saying it funny, but that's that's it. Uh, in British Columbia, Canada, east of Vancouver, so it's a sour oddity in the news. This summer, there have been two strange instances of lemons pierced with needles and tied to trees in parks around Port Coquitlam. The first lemon was found in Gates Park, which is a park with several sports fields as well as, uh, as a recreational trail, on June 22nd. It was reported in an email to the city of Port Coquitlam. And there was a photo posted to Facebook showing a lemon cut in half lengthwise, like from point to point, right. then held together by several sewing needles, no string on the needles, just the needles cut through it. I have the picture here, uh, and some type of string wrapped around it, maybe yarn, and then tied to a bush at about knee level. So the person that found it took it off the bush and and threw right. it away, but <clears throat> then but, but they took before they you know they took a picture of it first, and then they they emailed the police about it. So then the second lemon was found on Tuesday, July 14th. So three weeks later near a trail by the Coquitlam River at White Avenue, which is just northeast of Gates Park, where the first lemon was found. So the discovery was reported, again, with an email, separate person. I don't know why they emailed police. I don't know if they don't have nine one one or, or <laughs> some, <laughs> I mean it's, it's not, ex- <laughs> it's not exactly a nine one one thing but they they, emailed well, they could the email police. the picture that way and uh so but it was emailed to a closed community or yeah a closed community police station so this one was like the first in that it was cut lengthwise and again we have a picture uh, and put back together with sewing needles but and this one had orange twine wrapped around it and holding it to a tree. One major difference is that you can see a square of something. I thought it was foil or some thin metal, but some say it's a picture of a person okay. stuck between the two lemon halves. And so why would anyone do this? Is someone targeting wildlife or dogs, which is what the people that found the lemons thought, right. that, that they, it was somebody trying to hurt hurt the dogs on the trail or or the, uh, or the wildlife. But then some people are saying, you know, possibly it's witchcraft. Uh, which I don't have a clue how, <laughs> what they would do. But a few people on social n- media have pointed out that lemons with pins inside of them are tied to pagan witchcraft. Uh, a lemon with multicolored pins can be a sim- symbol of good luck, according to a popular book by uh, an American folklorist. Conversely, a lemon with black pins is thought to bring evil to the target of, incanta- mm. of the incantation. But these needles are just plain... Sewing needles like, regular you would, needles, like you would use to sew on a button. Right. So uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, Corporal Michael McLaughlin, said in a pre- press release... If you see something that could be deliberate attempt at harm, you must call the police on the phone rather right. than send an email. <laughs> Both of these lemons were thrown away in the garbage by people who found them and by the t- time police received the emails, the evidence was gone and an wow. investigation was virtually impossible. And he also goes on to say if you are leaving lemons full of needles in public, we ask that you stop.
1: Yeah, bad habit.
0: Very politely in in Canadian <laughs> fashion, we just ask you to please stop. Yeah. And then talk to us and explain what you're doing. <laughs> Conducting an experiment, perhaps. So, so mm-hmm. that's our oddity du jour. We'll see if any more lemons so show That was up. an
1: odd one, that's for sure. Very good.
0: <laughs> okay, so on to today's topic, Ripley.
1: Well, Ripley was a kind of an underdog. He was the kid who struggled in school, but he managed to take his unique talents and make a very successful living. He left a legacy. That's still very strong today, 100 years later. In fact, I, I would consider him kind of our inspiration in some ways here because we do a lot of what he did. And he was founded on nothing more than being intensely curious about the world and all the strangeness to be found in it.
0: I absolutely love uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. When I was a kid, I just devoured all of the paper right. books, paperback books that I could get a hold of. And uh, and you know, I was obviously in school. I had history and social studies, but they didn't pique my interest in different cultures around the world like Ripley did. Ripley. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the cartoons depicting people like the giraffe women of the Cayenne tribe from Thailand that use brass coils to stretch their necks, right? Or the it's such a weird thing to see. But, you know, I mean, there wasn't pictures, but like photographs, but there were drawings. Right. Uh, or the mercy people in Ethiopia that use the plates to stretch their lips. Right. Ripley's drawings just—they captured my fascination and and introduced the idea to me that while there that there was a whole other world out there that was different from what I was living. Because um, I think you know, as a right. kid, you think everybody has kind the of same, similar. That's right. That everybody has the same kind of life you do. And I remember reading about Chang and Eng. Uh, right. Like who knew that twins could be born conjoined and live full lives like that? Exactly. And so, you know, he, Ripley's books expanded my worldview, and that was, I think, my the beginning of my love for trivia and random facts.
1: And they're they're so simplistic in their, their design, too. You know, they're so easy to see. Everybody could see. They, they were easily reproducible. Um, and uh, the facts were always interesting, and people were always talking about it. I, I can remember people uh, cutting little articles out and keeping them in their wallet uh, about uh, something they saw on Ripley's. So let's learn a little bit more about who was Ripley anyway? Well, he starts off in California. Leroy Robert Ripley. And this is even begin- interesting how he began. He was born around February 22nd, 1890, in Santa Rosa, <laughs> California. Although his exact birthday is disputed, sources differ on his real birthday, which he reported inconsistently. You know, not, not knowing your exact birthday might have an influence on how you see the world. His father was a carpenter, and his mother took in laundry to earn extra money. His parents uh, called him Roy, and as a child, Ripley was thin, his ears stuck way out, and he had a slight stutter, and he had really terribly bucked teeth. We have a picture of him as a child. Uh,
0: Well, and he's unfortunate looking. (laughs) He was interesting (laughs) looking, let's say that.
1: His family was quite poor, and so often his mother made ill-fitting clothes for him out of pieces of laundry that her customers hadn't picked up. In school, the other kids teased him about his appearance. Mm. Yeah, his clothes are often didn't—often uh, his uh, pants looked more like uh, skirts. And, um, mm. of course, his, uh, his buck teeth and his ears sticking out uh, made him kind of a target for the other kids. The teachers were not too happy with him either because rather than pay attention to his lessons, Ripley was always drawing little pictures. He would draw all the time. He drew pictures of his mother, his sister, himself— Or anything else that he found interesting. The family was so poor that they couldn't afford drawing paper, so Ripley would draw on used butcher paper, old newspaper, and any other scrap of paper that he could get his hands on. He even carved little pictures and his initials into the rafters of the house that his father built. And his father was a carpenter. Many years later, that was given back to him as a gift.
0: Oh, wow. I wonder how his father felt about that at that (laughs) time. Probably at the time, he
1: wasn't too happy about it. (laughs) When he reached high school, his English teacher, Mrs. Frances O'Meara, saw how difficult it was for Ripley to read his essays aloud because of his stutter. She also picked up on how terrific his drawings were. She allowed Ripley to illustrate his essays with drawings rather than read them to the class. She hung his drawings up in her classroom.
0: Okay, let's just stop right there. What a teacher. Right, You know, I mean, it sounds like going to school was such an ordeal for him.
1: Very difficult,
0: and and I've raised four kids in the process of raising four kids, and not all of them had easy time, you know, an easy time in school, and so teachers have such an impact. Um, Right, for sure. So, did you? Who was your favorite teacher? You know, I have to go back. I have
1: a lot of good teachers, but I think my favorite one was actually a a college professor I had. His name was Bill Cody Barron. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he was a geography professor, and uh, when I, I took his class, that shifted my whole uh, my whole major. I changed majors so that I could I could teach geography like Cody Barron. Oh know. wow! Um, yeah, he was a, he was just a, a very ins- inspiring guy to me.
0: Well, we're going to see how she inspired him, and uh, and then how he kind of reflected that later, or, right? Or for sure, passed that on.
1: She even encouraged Ripley to submit some of his drawings to newspapers and magazines. And one of his favorite drawings was a picture of a drawing of his mother doing laundry. So he submitted it to Life magazine. Well, a few weeks afterward, he received a, a, an envelope in the mail. And when he opened it up, there was a check for $8. Now, in 1906, $8 would be roughly $233 today. So that was a significant amount of money, particularly to a family that was, uh, that was really struggling. The realization that he could make money from his drawings was an eye-opener for him. When Ripley was 15, his father died. He dropped out of high school to help support his family. Now, at first, he tried delivering newspapers. However, he hated waking up really early in the morning like paper boys had to do, so he quit that job, which didn't please his mother very much. (laughs) But that actually might have saved his life because um, uh, on April the 18th, 1906, a massive earthquake shook the entire region. Santa Clara, I'm sorry, Santa Rosa, where he grew up, is about 50 miles from San Francisco. You've heard of the famous 1906 San Francisco earthquake in which more than 3,000 people died, including several newsboys who were waiting to pick up their papers from the Santa Rosa newspaper. They died when the wall of the building they were standing by collapsed on top of them. So his decision to to, to quit that job may have saved his life.
0: So forget the whole early bird thing. Right. Stay in bed. Stay Stay in bed. bed. It's
1: healthier for you. In high school, Ripley had been a star pitcher for the baseball team. He thought that he could possibly have a potential career as a baseball player. After dropping out, he played for a couple of semi-pro baseball teams in the Santa Rosa area. He even made extra money by drawing ads and posters for the teams that he played for. His mother had rented out a room in their house to a writer named Carol Ennis, and when she saw Ripley's drawings, she encouraged him to try out for some of the larger newspapers in San Francisco. So even though he was still a teenager, Ripley moved the 50 miles from Santa Rosa to San Francisco. He was hired briefly by the San Francisco Bulletin as a sports cartoonist. However, when he saw the work of other cartoonists, he realized that he needed more training. After only four months, the Bulletin released him. Now, why would um, newspapers hire cartoonists? Because they had photography uh, in 1906. But um,
0: but it was expensive.
1: It was expensive, and it was still uh, cumbersome. The film was slow. It still was the era that when you wanted to take a portrait, uh, the person had to sit still for for several seconds um, in order for the image to be recorded on the film. So no and no sports. So that doesn't really yeah. work well with sports when there's always constant motion. You can't tell two boxers. Okay, hold it right there <laughs> while it, <laughs> while the camera is uh, is open while the shutter is open. And uh, photographic equipment, it was bulky and heavy. And so all these factors made photography ill-suited for covering sporting events. So most newspapers actually employed cartoonists to draw images depicting baseball players, boxing matches, and other sports. Now, while he was living in San Francisco, Ripley spent quite a lot of time in Chinatown. He could get a good um, meal there for cheap. And he also befriended many of the clerks and the shopkeepers that he met. He enjoyed listening to their stories about China. Uh, Ripley himself had really always been somewhat of an underdog, an outsider, kind of the the way that based on his looks. Right. And it's not surprising that he felt an identity with the Chinese immigrants who were themselves outside of the mainstream of the city life in San Francisco.
0: He loved the Chinese culture. Right. Much later on, when he he gets into all of the the and different I think cultures around the, the world, that's where the beginning of
1: it was, even right, right.
0: there. Right. Right. And when he, later on, much later on, when he would entertain, a lot of the times he would dress as a Chinaman.
1: Exactly. So. <laughs> Ripley began taking art classes to help him improve his technique. Soon he was given a tryout by the San Francisco Chronicle. His editors were impressed with his artwork as well as his work ethic. Listen out here, young people, work <laughs> ethic. That goes a long way. He would often give them several different drawings of an event to select from, and he didn't do just sports. He drew pictures for every other section of the paper. His, edit- his ed- editors were so impressed that Ripley was given a full-time job with the San Francisco Chronicle. So give, the, give your boss more than they ask for, and you'll stay on. That was what he learned. In July of 1910, the Chronicle sent Ripley to Reno, Nevada to cover a boxing match between Jack Johnson, who was the African-American heavyweight champion, and Jim Jeffries, a former champion. And by the way, some of the other sports writers were upset. The sports cartoonists were upset that Ripley, the youngest guy there, got that job, uh, but that his editors were so proud of him for the work that he was doing and his hard work ethic. That's why he was selected over even some of the more experienced ones. There you go. This fight was billed as the fight of the century. Now in Reno, Ripley met many famous cartoonists and writers from around the country who were there to cover the fight. And among these were Rube Goldberg. Yes, that Rube Goldberg, the one who did all the famous intricate drawings of complex machinery that were designed to do very simple tasks. You've, you've seen Rube Goldberg yes, machines, yes,
0: yes, and uh, and they're fascinating. I didn't know he was a cartoonist, though. I didn't know much about him. I thought that he actually made those machines, and mm-hmm. and people have been mimicking that uh, all this time. But uh, but you say he's just he was he drew he made them the in machines. his head.
1: He drew them. Yeah, he just imagined all a complex, you know, twenty steps to open a door, basically, you know, right, and all the different things. I believe that uh, we've seen that re- reproduced. Uh, Oh, I, and the, the old Looney Tunes cartoons would do that quite a bit, right. I remember. And right. uh, I think I saw an episode of uh, Mythbusters, I believe, that did it as well. And so, uh, anyway, uh, that was a, an inspiration to him. He also met the famous writer Jack London, uh, Call of the Wild. Right. And uh, several cartoonists uh, suggested that uh, Ripley relocate to New York City, where there were many large newspapers. Ripley moved to New York in 1911. He arrived there with only one suitcase and $15 in his pocket. There, this shy, buck-toothed young man went to every newspaper in the city to inquire about working as an artist, but none were interested. Finally, he tried out for the New York Globe, which was one of the oldest papers in the city, but in recent times had fallen behind the others. The Globe had, however, found a niche in publishing several large uh, pages of cartoons, And these were popular with many recent immigrants and also with the blue-collar workers who had somewhat limited reading skills. So even if they couldn't uh, uh, read the paper, they could pick up on the cartoons what was going on. The Globe decided to give young Ripley a chance, and he didn't let them down. He worked tirelessly producing several new cartoons every day. In addition to drawing cartoons, he was also allowed to write some articles for the sports page. He rented a room at the New York Athletic Club, which put him in direct contact with the sports stars of the day. Globe readers loved his stories and cartoons. The Globe editors decided that Leroy wasn't a good name for a sports (laughs) journalist, so they encouraged him to go by his middle name, Robert. His friends in New York started calling him Bob or occasionally even just Rip. That's a cool nickname, Have uh, Rip. Hey, Rip. How's it going? Even though things were going well with Ripley he still harbored dreams of playing professional baseball. In 1913, the Globe sent him to Texas to cover the New York Giants' baseball spring training. While there, he mentioned to the manager that he had pitched in high school and also on some semi-pro teams in California, so the Giants decided to give him a tryout. Ripley was excited to get a chance to show what he could do from the mound. However, just as he was winding up to throw his first pitch, he heard something snap. He would broken his arm. <laughs> First pitch, just ready to wind oh. up, and boom.
0: But he was really winding up. Yeah. That's crazy. He was, he was
1: really going to show him a good pitch, I suppose, and broke his arm on the wind-up. And that was the end of his baseball-playing dream. So from then on, he stuck to his main talent, which was drawing. In 1913, the editors of The Globe decided to send Ripley to Europe and North Africa. At the time, few Americans could afford to travel And so uh, much of uh, their—it was too expensive, really, to travel overseas, especially. The newspapers were the only way for most people to experience other places. The Globe wanted Ripley to draw and to write about the people and places that he saw. He he, uh, created great accounts and drawings of the pyramids in Egypt, a sword fight in Germany, and a boxing match in Paris. But I think people enjoyed this even much more. He also described his own foibles as a tourist, getting (laughs) lost— Tasting strange new foods and trying to get others to understand him by talking louder. Okay, that's the I've seen that many places.
0: A lot of people do that.
1: Right. Readers loved his writing style, which used common words and even slang. The globe's circulation increased and Ripley earned a raise. For the next few years, Ripley's popularity grew. His primary work continued to be drawing and writing about sports events. But uh, occasionally, he covered other topics too. When the United States entered World War I in 1917, Ripley drew patriotic cartoons about soldiers and sailors at war. One evening, in December of 1918, Ripley's editors at the New York Globe were waiting on him to complete his artwork before the deadline for the following day's paper. It was kind of a dry time of the year for sports, as there weren't many games going on, so Ripley had trouble, uh, sometimes he had to scramble to come up with something. And this particular night, he was out of ideas, and the deadline was looming. He also had a date planned that night with a Zigfield uh, Follies dancer named Beatrice Roberts, so he was really motivated to get <laughs> moving on out.
0: That, that's the best kind of motiv- motivation yeah. right there.
1: So he wanted to get finished early. And desperate to come up with anything, he pulled out a scrapbook where he had been collecting clippings of odd and unusual sports feats. He found enough odd facts to cobble together into one cartoon, which he featured drawings of these unusual accomplishments. They included Jay Darby of England, who jumped backwards 12 feet 11 inches while holding weights. R.P. Williamson of New London, Connecticut, who made a running high kick of 10 foot 3 inches. That would be over a crossbar on a, a goalpost. Wow. And Jay Forrester of Toronto, who ran 100 yards backwards in 14 seconds. He called his cartoon "Champs and Chumps." He would later claim that this was the beginning of Ripley's Believe It or Not, and we we have a picture of it, the first cartoon, and we'll put it on our, our webpage. Uh, even though this, it was several months before he would recreate a, he would produce another cartoon like it. In the early nineteen twenties, he began producing more of these cobbled together cartoons, and globe breeders liked them. And then he, that the second one he created, he called Believe It or Not. However, they still only appeared occasionally. His mainstay was still his regular sports artistry from baseball games and other sporting events. In 1920, he earned another opportunity to travel as the New York Globe sent him to Antwerp, Belgium, to cover the Olympic Games. In addition to his drawing, his writing continually improved. Ripley developed into a good journalist, and the New York Globe boasted, If you really appreciate art and literature combined, you can't afford to miss Rippling. Before returning home, he took a side trip to Norway. Someone at the Globe had heard that there was a town in Norway called Hell. The Globe's headline (laughs) blared, Bob Ripley reporting from Hell. His writing and artistry were so popular that in December 1922, the Globe sent him on a four-month tour around the world on a brand new ocean liner called the Laconia. I want,
0: I want to know how to get this job. Yeah, that That's was a good ge- job. That right? was a good
1: deal right there. They instructed him to draw and write about what he saw on the trip. The ship left New York and made 27 stops, including the Panama Canal, Hawaii, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, India, the Suez Canal, Naples, and Gibraltar. Before returning to New York, Ripley's ramble around the world, as he called it, featuring his detailed drawings and descriptive descriptive articles, were wildly popular with readers of the globe. You might say that he might, was the first travel blogger.
0: <laughs> he was way ahead of his time.
1: Way ahead of his time. In 1922, Hawaii was still a small dot in the Pacific that many Americans were unaware of. Ripley depicted being presented with a lei, and he also sketched surfers. He described the landscape in such vivid detail that, his readers imagined, they were seeing the islands through their own eyes. In Japan and China, he gave terrific accounts of the tea ceremony, crowded streets, unique architecture, and the elegant beauty of Mount Fuji. However, the most impactful on him during this round-the-world trip were the stops in India, where he encountered Hinduism for the very first time. The unusual practices of this religion were completely foreign to him. He witnessed the burning of corpses along the Ganges. He saw holy men torturing themselves to prove their devotion to their gods by laying down on beds of nails or staring into the sun until they went blind. Ripley was fascinated by some of the most bizarre forms of human behavior that he had ever witnessed. In addition, he was transfixed by the man-made features that he saw. He referred to the Taj Mahal as an unsurpassed monument of beauty and human devotion. The New York Globe had an arrangement with a company called Associated Newspapers. This company sold stories to newspapers across the country. Ripley's stories proved to be among the most popular, and readers in large cities and small towns were able to follow him on his travels. His writing style was casual and fun, and Americans loved learning about the new places that Ripley saw. After his return, more of his cartoons began featuring strange things that he had seen on his trip or they he had heard about from other sources. In 1923, this was a very fortunate uh, occurrence for him, he hired a researcher named Norbert Perloth, Perlroth, P-E-A-R-L-R-O-T-H, Perlroth, to investigate stories that he had heard about. Perlroth, who understood 14 languages, would remain the lead researcher for Ripley's Believe It or Not for the next 52 years. That's a good gig when you go from 1923 right. to 1975 in the same <laughs> job. And uh, it was a very but, fortunate uh, find for Ripley to come across it, Mr. That's Proho. right. That's
0: what I was going to say. It, to find someone that could speak 14 languages and, and be committed for, for that right. long. <laughs> also in
1: 1923, Ripley moved uh, to the New York Evening News, which bought out the Globe. His columns continued to increase in popularity. He didn't leave his sports illustrations entirely, though. In fact, in 1925, he wrote a guidebook about how to score a boxing match. You know, boxing matches are scored by various points, by the different jabs and moves by the boxers. More and more, though, his columns featured unusual and bizarre people, accomplishments, stunts, and occurrences.
0: And thank goodness, because I'm exactly. not a sports fan, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a fan of the bizarre.
1: Right. In 1926, Ripley was sent to England to cover the famous Derby horse race. Ripley drew the winning horse and wrote an article to accompany his drawing. A new process had been developed in which photographs and drawings could be transmitted from place to place by radio signal. Thus, Ripley's stories and artwork appeared in newspapers in America on the same day that he transmitted it from, from England. That was an amazing accomplishment right there. It was groundbreaking technology for its time. In 1927, one of Ripley's cartoons stirred tremendous controversy but also brought him a lot of attention. That was the year that the aviator Charles Lindbergh had just completed the first solo flight across the Atlantic. Lindbergh was an instant hero. However, Ripley published a cartoon stating that Lindbergh was in fact the 67th man (laughs) to make a nonstop flight across the Atlantic. He received thousands of letters accusing him of being anti-American and questioning why he would say such a thing. He let the FURR build for a while. Then he explained his rationale. He pointed out that before Lindbergh, there had been two dirigibles with more than 30 people each that had made the flight. There had also been a plane fl- uh, piloted by two aviators who had done it. Lindbergh was the 67th across, but the first to do it solo. solo. He left That's out right. the word solo in his original cartoon. <laughs> that caused all the attention.
0: Uh, But I think it goes along, bad press is, uh, any Any press press is is good good press, press, right. 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 And I think he knew that. He was a genius at marketing.
1: He sure was. The following year, Simon & Schuster published a book collection of Ripley's most popular columns. The book sold very well and was seen by many people around the country that didn't normally see his columns, including including, uh, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, Hearst, who is the owner of King Feature Syndicate, the largest newspaper publisher in the world. Hearst immediately offered to carry Ripley in his papers, which gave Ripley instant international exposure and also paid him $100,000 per year. In 1927, that was a lot of money, ten times more than what he was earning before. Ripley's Believe It or Not began appearing in Hearst papers in 1929, and the words Believe It or Not became a national catchphrase. Ripley's, believe it or not, contains something for everyone, from bizarre natural phenom- phenomena like the laughing cat of Portland, Oregon, <laughs> to human stunts like the North African holy man who ate poisonous scorpions, to unusual numbers. Okay, I'm gonna see if I can yeah, get this ahead. number right. Yeah, go ahead. Do that. There, uh, this is one in, in his article. There are four, and no, i All right, there are seven quadrillion, 544, 436 billion. different possible combinations in a deck of 52 playing cards.
0: Very good. Very good.
1: (laughs) Ripley's articles gave people a steady diet of fascinating facts. He always stated that he could back up any claim made in his articles. Again, Norbert Pearl Roth, the researcher he had hired in 1923, now became the chief of a staff of several researchers. Ripley employed a large staff of researchers, artists, translators, and secretaries. Pearl Roth would spend hours in the New York Public Library researching potential new finds for Ripley to discover. As time went by... (laughs) Wait,
0: wait, did you do finger quotes there to to, discover? discover, yeah.
1: (laughs) He would find them and Ripley would discover it. As time went by and the column became more popular, people across the United States and around the world began sending in cards and letters with information about unusual local people or occurrences. The research team spent much of their time verifying these claims. The local angles only served to make Ripley's uh, even more popular. And he capitalized on this popularity by holding contests in which people could mail in their own odd story. He received up to 3,000 cards and letters every day. There were prizes awarded, but to most, the ultimate prize was being immortalized in one of Ripley's features. Some of these included Mr. and Mrs. Frederick Butsky, (laughs) who vowed on their wedding day to always eat from the same plate, and they've done the same thing for 49 years. Or Mrs. W.E. Updegraff from Vanita, Oklahoma, who makes 60 pies in 45 minutes every day. Now, Ripley didn't make fun of these people or treat them as sideshow freaks. Rather, he treated them with dignity, and he always appeared to be eager to celebrate the underdog. He didn't forget his old hometown of Santa Rosa, California, being careful to document the building of a church that was constructed entirely from the wood of one one (laughs) redwood tree. It's called the Church of One Tree. In an odd twist, many people who entered this contest didn't write Ripley's address on the postcard, but rather drew some uh, type of cartoon or puzzle indicating Ripley's name. They were really bizarre. Sometimes the postman had trouble trying to figure out who they were sending it to, and then they began realizing, oh, this is to Ripley. Uh, After a while, though, the post office... Announced that they wouldn't deliver any more such mail to Ripley. (laughs) Spoil (laughs) Spoil sports, sports. yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, so, so you mentioned that a teacher encouraged him and got just allowed him to start drawing, doing his the what he was strong at.
1: Hanging artwork up in a classroom is really big deal for a kid, you know.
0: Well, and but he was older too at that time. Yeah, he was was, high school, right? And allowing him to do that instead of getting up and speaking right. she just saw what his strength was and what his weaknesses were and so uh that encouragement i think probably had a lot to do with with how he lived out the rest of his life and so one of the people so this is an interesting tidbit that he passes on the encouragement right. one of the people who entered one of these contests was a 15 year old boy from minnesota who sent in a drawing of his dog, Sparky. The boy claimed that Sparky could eat broken glass and needles and yet remained unharmed.
1: Oh, that relates back to the needles and the, uh, and the lemons, maybe. There, yeah,
0: there you go. There's our tie-in. There's
1: our tie-in, okay.
0: Ripley liked the story and the boy's drawing so much that he used them both, and perhaps he was remembering his first cartoon in life. The boy's name... It was Charles Schultz uh-huh. who would later create Peanuts. Peanuts, Charlie and Brown. Sparky was occasionally appeared as a as a cousin of Snoopy.
1: That's a that's a great carry on there. He was inspired, then he inspired others.
0: And then uh, another cool fact is that Ripley had an influence on the national anthem. So on November third, nineteen twenty nine, Ripley caused a stir because apparently he was. He enjoyed doing that. Right. (laughs) Uh, By saying that America had no national anthem. Despite the widespread belief that the Star Spangled Banner was the U.S. national anthem, anthem, Ripley pointed out that Congress had never officially made it so. So, with the encouragement of John Philip Sousa, Congress took up the matter, and on March 3rd, 1931, President Herbert Hoover signed the law that made the Star Spangled Banner the official national anthem of the United States. Made it
1: official. All
0: because he started, he stirred up stuff. Right. He's stirring the pot. (laughs) Uh, Ripley broke into radio in 1930 with the backing of uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, Ripley expanded into the new medium of radio. Ripley's, believe it or not, would become a staple on national radio for the next 18 years. The radio show's success, along with his regular column, enabled. Ripley to make extensive tours around the world searching for more interesting people and facts to represent or to present to his paper and radio audience. He would host live radio broadcasts from underwater in a shark tank. That's cool. An airplane, Mm -hmm. a snake pit. All right. Carlsbad Caverns and the floor of the Grand Canyon, just to name a few. Maybe we I could. Think we've we, got
1: a couple of those pictures, don't we? Yeah. And,
0: and maybe we could take our show on the road. we could. That's right.
1: <laughs> I'm not you getting to in a shark pit, I'm not the doing Canyon the shark tent. tank or the snake <laughs> pit. <laughs> okay.
0: So in 1934, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> in 1934, he hosted the first radio show broadcast simultaneously around the world.
1: That's quite a, a deal there. And there was all around the world could hear the same broadcast at one time.
0: That's right. And he had 16 translators ha- aiding in that. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1931, Ripley began producing and starring in movie short subjects for Vitaphone and Warner Brothers, naturally featuring... Photos and movies of his odd discoveries, though he wasn't the most natural speaker, often appearing awkward and stiff, and occasionally stuttering. Audiences loved him anyway.
1: You can still see some of those clips on YouTube. They are available, and uh, they're they're fascinating to watch. And, and and watch him. You know, I think one of the reasons people loved him is that he wasn't polished, and he wasn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, prepared like a Hollywood personality. But he was. He still was a little awkward and didn't didn't. Always speak uh, quite well, and he had the amazing protruding teeth, buck teeth. (laughs) When he was wealthier, he had them worked on a little bit, but he told them, don't mess with my teeth, though, because that's my trademark, is my buck teeth. That's funny. In 1933, he opened Ripley's Auditorium. I think that appeared in one of our other podcasts, the Auditorium, O-D-D-I-T-O-R-I-U-M. At the Chicago World's Fair, which featured remarkable people, including the man who lifted weights from hooks that were attached to his oh, eyelids. Oh, yeah, that would why? hurt. He also featured odd natural occurrences, such as the one eared rabbit. In the, <laughs> I'd like to see the one eared <laughs> rabbit. Is that a unicorn? <laughs> I don't of? know. Rabbit, had anyway. a of rabbit, that was, they found with only one ear. In the next five years, he would open auditoriums in San Diego, Dallas, Cleveland, San Francisco, and New York. Ripley prospered during the Great Depression, making over $500,000 a year. He finally moved out. All this time, he was still living in that little apartment in the New York (laughs) Athletic Club. Uh, But he finally moved out of there, and he bought a large house in uh, Mamaroneck, New York. The house was located on a small island, and Ripley named it Bayon Island for Believe It or Not. Bayon, get it? Believe It or Not. (laughs) Good name. Ripley was a uh, national celebrity. Ripley was a national celebrity. In a poll conducted in 1936, members of the Boys Club were asked whose job they would most like to have. Ripley received more votes from these children than anyone else, including President Roosevelt.
0: Uh, He has my vote. (laughs) I would like to have that job, too. That would be an amazing job, I think.
1: During World War II, Ripley continued with his newspaper and radio work, but he also volunteered his time for charities in support of the war effort. He used his cartoon to celebrate brave soldiers and sailors who had conducted amazing acts in combat. He used his radio broadcast to send out positive and encouraging messages to U.S. troops and citizens. Two years after the war was over, he conducted one final visit to Japan and China where he was dumbfounded by the devastation and destruction that he witnessed. He conducted a live radio broadcast from Hiroshima and he detailed the devastation of the atomic bomb, which was still evident, Two years later, one of his final radio broadcasts was from Pearl Harbor, within sight of the sunken USS Arizona. Upon returning home from this trip, he made a stop back in his hometown of Santa Rosa, and he presented a necklace from China to his old English teacher, Aww. Mrs. O'Meara, his high school English teacher who had encouraged him for so many years before. Robert Ripley was the most traveled man of his time. He's documented as visiting. 201 of the 235 recognized countries at his time. In his travels, he logged over 600,000 miles.
0: That's amazing.
1: Quite amazing.
0: Okay, so let's talk about his death. I I found on uh, this article, and I'm going to just read it word for word, from BlueLoop.com, that's okay. B-L-O-O-L-O-O-P.com. World explorer, writer, illustrator, and media pioneer Robert Ripley died 71 years ago on Friday, May twenty-seventh, 1949. In true Ripley fashion, his final exit was a true believe it or not. He was among the first to have a regularly scheduled television program in 1949, and it was on his 13th show. Uh, so if you're very, yeah, very scared <laughs> about the, or superstitious about the number 13. 13 uh it was his 13th show on may 24th that America last saw the great showman that show was dedicated to showing off his priceless collection of crown jewels from europe but it also featured a short sketch about the true story behind the world's most famous bugle call taps toward the end of the program during the playing of taps ripley grew weary passed out and fell to the floor the show was not over and he couldn't continue Ripley resisted all efforts to take him to the hospital, and it wasn't until 12 hours later that he sought medical attention by checking himself into the hospital, where he died three days later on May 27.
1: That's going out with, uh, with, with some flair, isn't it?
0: <laughs> right. The, <It's> the taps. <laughs> the funeral service took place in New York City, just off of Broadway, and thousands lined the streets to watch as his body was taken to the train depot to be sent by rail back to his native California. An an additional prayer service was held in the Church of One Tree in Santa Rosa, and he was buried in that city's Odd Fellows Cemetery next to his parents.
1: Amazing. Really amazing. Well, Robert Ripley's ideas and legacy live on. Ripley Entertainment, a company bearing his name, is now owned by the Jim Patterson Group, Canada's largest privately held company. Hey, Jim Patterson Group, uh, if you want to sponsor a podcast, you know, we'll listen. (laughs) (laughs) Ripley Entertainment airs national uh, television shows, features publication of oddities, and has holdings in a variety of public attractions include Ripley's Aquarium, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museums, and Ripley's Sightseeing Tours. Robert Ripley was posthumously awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for his radio broadcast. You know, Leah, uh, we were talking earlier, you and I have both been to the Ripley Believe It or Not Museum in San Antonio, Texas. Right across from the Alamo, in fact. That's right. And I have to say, I was much more impressed with with it than I thought I would be. Uh, I've been a history teacher for many, many years, and so I I wasn't sure if it was going to be kind of, before I really knew much about Ripley, Uh, but uh, I was um, uh, really impressed by many of the things I saw there. To me, one of the most interesting exhibits that they had in that um, particular branch was the car that Lee Harvey Oswald rode to work in the day that uh, that he assassinated uh, John F. Kennedy. The car belonged to his neighbor and co-worker that worked in the same building. So it's a really interesting place.
0: I took two of my boys and and my daughter, and my daughter was eight years old, and she was pretty <laughs> creeped out because it has a, a circus-type right. atmosphere, and so you don't know how— it's it's almost like he was really good at packing in all of this cultural educational right. information in a sideshow type way that exactly. was fascinating and so I loved it, but it was nostalgic to me because I'd grown up reading all of these exactly. these stories and everything. And my boys loved it.
1: We highly recommend seeing Ripley's museum. Very interesting.
0: There are over 32 museums throughout uh, the, world. the world, or throughout the United States, and then some overseas. Uh, and so going back, we mentioned a couple times the Church of One Tree. Right. Ripley. Drew a cartoon and featured that in one of his uh one of his cartoons and, and books um and so I want to just touch on that. It's a historic building in the city of santa rosa california u s a and it was built in eighteen seventy three and seventy four from a single redwood tree hmm. and it's beautiful if you look it up on on uh on their website, I think it's a wedding venue today, right but the tree used to construct the church stood two hundred and seventy five feet high and was 18 feet in diameter. Oh, that's a big tree. That is a very big tree. (laughs) One of these days I want to see the redwoods. Uh, The single tree, when milled, produced 78,000 board feet of lumber, with the lumber costing a total of $3,000, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but it was was a—
1: Probably 100 times that much. That's right. It was
0: huge then. It was the original home to the First Baptist Church of Santa Rosa, located in downtown uh, on B Street. It was moved to its current location to avoid destruction. The building has been home to several other unique uses in more recent decades. Robert Robert Ripley, a native of Santa Rosa, wrote about the church of One Tree, where his mother attended services, as one of his earliest installments of Believe It or Not. In 1970, Ripley repurposed the church, and so... It says that it re- Ripley repurposed the church, but Ripley it was company. Ripley Company right. repurp- repurposed the church of one tree as the Ripley Memorial Museum, which was stocked with curiosities and, believe it or not, memorabilia for nearly two decades. From the 1950s until 1998, it was the Ripley Memorial Museum. So starting in 2008 and continuing through 2009, the city of Santa Rosa utilize grant funding to re the stained glass windows, as well as repair, paint, and renovate the interior of the church. And the Recreation and Parks Department rents the space out for events. It is located adjacent to Juilliard Park and less than one block from the Luther uh, Burbank Home and Gardens Historic Site. It is beautiful. I would love to visit. Uh, and one last thing about Ripley is we... Um, Earlier, we referred to Ripley as a media pioneer. Right. He made use of books, radio, TV, movies, all of it. Whatever media was prevalent in his time, he made use of it. So I think he would be very pleased to know, I found this out today, that there's a podcast that carries his name. It debuted in there June so. of 2019 and has about 40 episodes that feature trivia and tr- strange stories. That is the Ripley legacy. The podcast, if you want to check it out, I, uh, I subscribe to it, but I haven't listened to any of it yet. It's called Ripley's Believe It or Not Cast.
1: Believe It or Not Cast. That's right. <laughs> Very good.
0: All right. So that leads us to today's trivia challenge. And the rules are the same as always. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stoop Podcast. Like and share this episode post and put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of the post, and the first person to do that...
1: Well, We have a we have an actual prize. We have
0: an actual prize. We will send you We a, have a little book. A book.
1: Titled um, that, that actually some of our inf- information came from, a nice little book called Who Was Robert Ripley by Kirsten Anderson? Uh, copied right 19, 2015 by Penguin Workshop for all that information. And uh, it's a really nice little book, and I think that... Uh, you and your, your family would enjoy having it. So the first person who can answer the trivia question on our website who can answer this question will be the recipient of that little book. So here's the question. Are you ready? Drum roll. I'm ready. Okay. Bring it in to In addition me. to being an artist, Ripley was a good athlete. In 1925, he wrote a handbook about a sport which was very popular at the time. In fact, the following year in 1926, he was the New York State champion at this sport. Name the sport.
0: So it wasn't curling? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's <laughs> curling. <I'm> not sure. <laughs> okay, so the trivia question, the trivia challenge question for the Four-Legged Soldiers episode. It's a was a great th-
1: question, by the way.
0: Around 700 years ago in what is now the Czech Republic, a royal family had a rather unusual moat built around their castle. Instead of being filled with water, it was filled with this formidable animal that are still kept in the moat to this day. Well, the tri- Trivia Challenge winner is, drumroll,
1: who do you think? Not Harbin again.
0: It's Harbin. Harbin Gold. Oh, Harbin, our Ooh. number one fan. <laughs> I think he is, okay, the all-time undefeated <laughs> Remnant Stew Trivia Challenge champion. Harbin, we'd like to ask you a couple of favors first. Uh, Next trivia challenge, let's give everyone a head start of about two hours (laughs) until after the episode post hits to see if all these other schmucks (laughs) can come up with the answer. Tie
1: one arm behind your back, Harvin. Just type with your left hand.
0: Tie half your brain behind your back. Yeah, there you go. After that, all is fair game. (laughs) <laughs> Second, we would love to get a picture with you. Absolutely. We know you live in the great state of Louisiana, but if you come back to your hometown, please hit us up. We would love to, to bring you into the studio and get a picture.
1: Absolutely. Our, 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 our spacious studios here in the greater cut-and-shoot area, we'd love to have you. Great, greater cut-and-shoot.
0: <laughs>
1: Harbin commented on, our, on the four-legged uh, soldiers episode post and said, something is a Bruin, B-R-U-I-N, at the Chesky-Krumlov Castle the second largest castle in the Czech Republic. This mid-13th century castle has a moat of bears. Bears li- live in the moat and have been since 1707, I think even maybe before that, too. There's a really terrific book that's written about that uh, castle called The Bloodletter's Daughter. I highly recommend if you uh, get a chance to read that book. Anyway, the Rosenberg uh, family that built the castle had a long association that's with right, bears. That's right, they did. They were bear keepers. And their family coat of arms featured bears.
0: And we actually have a prize for this trivia question. That's right. We have a book that we're going to send you.
1: That's right. Oh, yeah. It's a book that's about one of the four-legged soldiers, in fact.
0: Thank you, Harbin. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting us. Thank you, Harbin. Remnants Do is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Audio is produced by the amazing Philip Sinkfield. Makes
1: it sound good, Phil.
0: Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram. And if you have an idea you would like to hear us cover in a future episode, email us. We'd
1: like to hear from you. Stay
0: curious at remnantstew.com.
1: Now before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Maybe take the time to give us a review on iTunes. Please. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, your family, whoever you might happen to come by. Oh, your chauffeur, yo. Taxi drivers, tell them about it too. And until next time, remember, you can make a difference in the world if you will just choose to be kind and And always stay curious. curious.